if Christ died for the person that you're sitting next to, what should you do for them? If Christ died for the person you're sitting next to, what should you do for them? This morning I'm preaching from Philippians chapter 2 verses 1 through 4 which you can find on page 980 of the blue Bibles that are surrounded in the, the sanctuary here. Or if you've got one of the burgundy Bibles, those are large print, you can find it on page 1165. And we're continuing our, our series in Philippians here. Last week, we saw that the Scriptures command us to live lives worthy of of the gospel, the gospel that we freely receive, we are then called to live a life that's worthy of what we have been given. Striving together in unity for the faith of the gospel. And I urged you and committed myself to building the unity of the church by spending time with each other, not just casually, but intentionally. Asking questions like, how did you come to know the Lord? And how are you doing with your walk with the Lord right now? And I thought, this passage is really a continuation of that. And so as I was getting ready to preach really a second message on the unity of the church, I was reminded of a time that I was riding in a car with a a friend on the way back from Ikea. And I know that he's a good friend because he had agreed to carry a couch up three flights of stairs into our apartment. Actually, he just agreed to help me get it into the apartment. I don't think I told him about the three flights of stairs yet. And as we were driving back to our little apartment in Chicago, he said, how's your walk with the Lord? And I was taught totally off guard. And I... I felt somehow vaguely threatened, even though I considered this guy a good friend. It was just such a personal question. And I, I felt like I was actually doing pretty well with the Lord. Uh, you know, it, we always say, well, I could, I could have definitely grow more. I could always improve. And we're, we're really tempted to forget the grace that allows us to be loved and, and welcome into God's presence. So when someone asks you a question like that, you immediately start thinking of all the things that aren't going well. And I felt somewhat uncomfortable that he even asked. And then I realized, this is a good and a healthy question. It shouldn't be out of place among believers for us to ask each other, how are you with the Lord right now? It's so common for us to be saved And to have joy in knowing that our sins are forgiven. And then to experience dry times where we don't seem close to the Lord anymore. And in those times, we need each other to come along and be an encouragement to each other. And so my friend Mark was that for me. And we started to talk a little bit. And I really appreciated such a simple, direct question. So last week, I encourage you. Make it a point. And I said, within two weeks, spend time with someone from the church that you don't know and be willing to talk about things of the Lord. Not just your kids and your grandkids. Not just how things are going on your vacation or in retirement. 
But how are you doing with the Lord? My buddy Mark wasn't implying that there was something wrong in my spiritual life. He was just being a good friend and actually giving real fellowship. In today's passage, Paul continues his thought that as a united body of believers, the Philippian church has been granted both to believe and to suffer as they strive together for the faith of the gospel. That's the end of chapter 1 there. And so, since they are struggling for the gospel like Paul is, Paul continues to urge them on towards unity. And he begins by arguing that unity should exist because of the experience of the church. Let me read the passage to get, that, that we're studying today. In Philippians chapter 2. Paul says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This morning we're going to see just a few things in the passage. And the first is that this sort of unity comes from the experience of love in the church. The experience of love in the church. Let me read the first verse of chapter 2 again. He says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. And he goes on to describe. The the first thing that I want to see here is really contained in verse 2. And he describes Christian unity and the experience that motivates it in four really pregnant terms. And I'd like to look at each of them in, in turn. The first is encouragement in Christ. Encouragement in Christ. The word for encouragement in Greek is paraklesis, which might not mean anything to you except that in John, when Jesus says that he is sending us the Holy Spirit, he says, I'm sending you a paraclete. I'm sending you a comforter. I'm sending you an encourager. So the word encouragement is tied to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Not that this is unique to the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ is also said to be our advocate. And there are a couple of things that come together, I think, to give us a full picture here. Imagine a lawyer in court as your advocate. The person who comes to your defense. You might bumble through your own defense and say, you know, these are the things that you could consider as, as you plead my case, but a good lawyer will be your advocate. He'll know the law better than you do. He'll articulate your case better than you could. And he'll be a stronger defense. That's the type of encouragement that's here. Elsewhere, this word is translated as exhortation. When Paul says, if anyone has the gift of exhortation, listen to him in the church. So it's not just encouragement in the sense of you're having a rough day. Oh, well, I'll pray for you or, or even, you know, a hug. We'll actually get to that kind of encouragement in just a second. This is strong encouragement. I think sometimes when we think of encouragement, we only think of empathy. 
the sort of crying on someone's shoulder. This is encouragement that gives you the strength to do what you need to do, that helps you, that builds you up. And Paul says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, both from Christ and from people who are also sharing in Christ, if there is any encouragement in Christ, work towards being a united body of believers. The second thing is comfort from love. Comfort from love. Sometimes when you're discouraged, you don't need a strong lawyer shouting your defense. You need someone to sit with you, to love you. This comfort is from love, and it is encouraging those who are really depressed. In secular Greek, this word is used for those that tried to embrace philosophy to help them make sense of the world. And yet, our comfort is from the love that we experience first from God, and then that we give to one another within the church. And Paul is saying that this sort of comfort, this encouragement for those who are depressed, is part of the experience of the church. The next phrase that he says is participation in the Spirit. Participation in the Spirit. And the word participation is the word koinonia. This phrase is describing active fellowship. And that comes from the Holy Spirit indwelling each of us. The, the word translated participation here is actually translated a few different ways throughout the New Testament, and it combines a few ideas. So I want to give you two different references for where it's used so that we can get a, a picture of what he means here. The first is in Acts 2.42, where it describes the church as being united in the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And that word for fellowship is the same word that's translated participation here. The fellowship side of it emphasizes community. That all of us share in this common gift of God. That all of us have something in common. And that is fellowship in the Spirit. That we all welcome the work of the Spirit in our lives, the forgiveness of our sins, and all of us come in and share that together. All of us share the gifting of the Holy Spirit as we seek to serve in the church. And so if I recognize that your gifts are from the Holy Spirit, I would respect that God is at work in you and God is at work through you. And yet, there's another aspect of it. Fellowship can be kind of passive. If you're spending time with people, you may not be doing anything. And sometimes that's okay. Sometimes you build fellowship just by sharing a meal and not being very intentional. But this word is more active than that, which is why here it's translated participation. You don't just go to a party and find a lonely corner and sit by yourself. You actually become part of the group. You interact with them. So in 1 Corinthians 10.16, Paul says we participate in the body and blood of the Lord when we take communion. Participate means active. It means you actually do something. So as we eat the bread and as we drink the cup, we are actively saying that the body and blood of the Lord is for me and for us. And it's more than just sitting down and having fellowship. You actually do something to show that reality. And so here, when Paul writes that we have participation in the Spirit, 
I believe that this fellowship is an active fellowship where we use the gifts that we are given by the Spirit of God to serve one another in the church, which means that you can't just come to church and be passive and sit down and do nothing. It means that the gifting that you have by the Spirit of God is intended for service in the church and in the community. And as you serve together, that's when you really have rich fellowship. So he says encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, and finally, affection and sympathy. And these these are the emotions and the sympathetic feelings that go together with everything else I've described so that you genuinely care about the people you you are serving with. That you feel their joy and their sorrow both. This, a moment ago I said, as we were talking about the kind of encouragement in Christ. I said that was strong encouragement. This is the other half of that, where you come together and you do weep with those who weep. This is sitting with someone at a funeral home talking about their loved one. This is helping someone with the loss of a job. This is sympathy and compassion. So, to summarize, we have a strong lawyer. We have a grief counselor. We have the life of the party and we have someone to cry with. How is that for a picture of life in the church? It's strong and it's tender. You can rejoice at a potluck and you can weep at a funeral dinner. So encouragement, comfort, community, and compassion. These are part of the church. Has that been true for you? Has that been true of your experience? The reason that's important is Paul uses this as the basis for unity. So he says, if there has been any of this experience of encouragement, comfort, community, compassion, if someone has ever come to you defense, come alongside you and built you up, then You need to work towards the unity of the church. Your experience is part of why you need to continue to fight for this unity. If this seems like an unrealistic picture, like maybe Paul says that this church is better than our church is, or the churches that you've been part of in the past, I want to say two things that hopefully are an encouragement. The first is Paul says, if there is any. He doesn't say that this is the overwhelming picture of what the church actually is like. Someday it will be. Someday we will be a perfect community when we're with our Lord. Right now, because God is active in us, this is true partially. All of us have experienced the ministry of God to a certain extent. And we as a church need to strive to make this more and more true of us as a church. So he says, if there is any, not that the entire church perfectly embodies this, although one day it will. But all of us, if we have experienced salvation, and if we have been welcomed into a body of believers, have experienced this in part. So Paul is saying, this is true of any church where God is, where God is active. And if there are any believers, then God is there. So at some level, this is true of every church. 
he knows that this is not entirely true in the Philippian church. And he's arguing for the unity of the body. But later on in chapter 4, he actually talks to two people in particular. And I can only imagine what it was like for them to hear their names read out loud in church with no preparation or warning. But he says in 4 verse 2, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Two people, we don't even know what their disagreement was about. We know that they labored side by side together in the gospel. And so that they were people who were believers, who were involved in ministry, and yet their their little dispute was so large that Paul had heard about it, separated by hundreds of miles. And so I want to mention that to let you know, Paul doesn't have rose-colored glasses as he looks at the church. He's not saying the church is a perfect and beautiful place, and because you've had this wonderful experience, then you can work towards unity. The reality is, I would guarantee everyone in here has at some point been actually hurt by the church. And so we struggle to realize that this is actually a true picture and a true painting of what the church is. We need to strive for this to be true. The second reason to take heart is this. In our passage today, in the four verses that we're looking at, Paul goes on to exhort the church to work for unity. So he's saying, since this is true in part, work to make it even truer in your midst together as a body of believers. As God works in us, we can grow as a body. The present condition of the church, if you've been hurt, is not her future condition. And we can begin to grow right now. Which is why he commands the church with the application of this unity in heart and in mind. So let's look at verse 2 together. And this is the application of unity in heart and in mind. Verse 2. He writes, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul says, since this is true in part, then complete my joy by working for greater unity. And he really describes it in two ways. He says, be of the same mind and have the same love. And then he repeats, be in full accord and of one mind. And I think there are two essential ways that we need to do this. We need to learn to agree with each other on essential things. And I think this is really critical for understanding the next two verses. One of the essential components for unity is being of the same mind. And I've referenced Acts 2.42 already in this message, and I actually started the, the service with it last week. It's the passage that describes early believers being united together under the teaching of the apostles, under the celebration of communion, and in prayer. And I think it helps us get a picture of what Paul means here. When it says that the early church was devoted to the apostles' teaching, I believe that is how they learned to have the same mind. They not only learned the scriptures, they understood how the scriptures were applied in their context. 
So as you see the church encounter all kinds of trials and all kinds of threats and persecution in the early church, you see them respond with an attitude of prayer over and over again. And their prayers are saturated with the Old Testament. They understand what the scriptures say about where they're living and what they're doing. And so as they begin to talk to God about their experience in the church, they do so with the language of the scriptures. And where did they get that? They got it because they were devoted to the teaching of the apostles. They were united in prayer because they had the same mind. And they thought the same way because they learned how to agree by being devoted to the apostles' teaching. So let me ask you, can you say that in your Christian experience, you have learned a lot? Are you continuing to learn? This aspect of unity is so important that Paul repeats it at the end of the same verse. And I think it's healthy to acknowledge Paul elsewhere condemns worthless kinds of knowledge and endless speculations. There is a type of unhealthy interest in certain aspects of theology that don't contribute to the unity of the church. That's not what I'm talking about, and that's not what Paul's talking about. But I think too often the reality is that the church has thrown the theological baby out with the bathwater and said that all theology is irrelevant, and then we've suffered a lack of unity because we don't know how to biblically think together. I want to encourage you this morning to be committed to growing in knowledge so that we can work together to have unity. The only sort of unity that we'll have will come as we agree about what the Scriptures teach and what they say about our present lives together as a church. There's no such thing as a unity that lacks knowledge. You can't have ignorant unity. But thinking alone is not enough. In fact, as I've already admitted, sometimes theology can lead to arguing that is divisive. And I'll even admit that it goes, goes bad sometimes with good people who are devoted to good theology. Which is why Paul also instructs the church to have the same love. Each of you is to be filled with the same love for Christ and his mission and his church. Jesus taught that the greatest commandment was to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. But that love is only possible when we first receive God's love, which is why John writes, we love because he first loved us. And in Ephesians, Paul prays that the church would know the love of God that surpasses knowledge. So the biblical picture of the love of the church is love that flows from God the Father and then in us and through us. It means that you know that God loves you and you cannot help but love other people. Remember that God's love for you isn't love that you deserve. The scriptures say that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This love gives us the ability to grow in our unity. It means that people who think differently, people who are both devoted to learning and yet don't agree, 
can be patient with each other as they work to agree. And then, Paul applies this love and this knowledge to the individual relationships we have in the church. And so you can see in verses 3 and 4, the application of unity in preferring others. The application of unity in preferring others. Let's look at verses 3 and 4 again. Paul says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Before we listen to what these verses have to say to us, I want to stress again that you have to take them in context. One of the most obvious objections to what Paul is saying here is that if we really did this, we would have a community where nothing gets done because everyone is so selfless, we can't agree on whose vision to follow. It's like two people standing in front of a door who are both saying, oh no, you go first, oh no, you go first, and neither of them ever go through the door. Or I I am a very, I attempt to be a very, uh, I don't want to say passive driver, but I do let other people go first. So if I pull into an intersection and I know that we got there at the same time, I'll motion for the other person to go through the intersection first. And if there's any question in my mind, I'll stay there and go, no, 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 go ahead, go ahead. Because my fear is that I'll just go ahead and go and then they'll run into me. At some point, someone has to go through the intersection. Paul is not saying prefer one another to such an extent that no one ever does anything. That's not what this means. Next week, we will see that Jesus is the ultimate example of this. We're going to see one of the most incredible passages in the New Testament describing the work of Christ. His service meant that he fulfilled his calling to meet our greatest need. You could misuse this passage and say that you should always do what other people ask you to do, preferring what others do. That isn't true. If that were true, Jesus would have submitted to people rather than to God. And he would have been an earthly king instead of going to the cross. But instead, Jesus submitted to the Father and put us first, not by doing what we asked him to do, but by doing what God asked in service to poor sinners who didn't really know their need. So now that I've said that we're, we're probably a little bit back at the danger of disunity where everyone says, well, this is my calling, so I'm sorry, we'll just have to do this my way. There's a real tension here. Because if I know what I believe God has called me to do, and I value each of you, I'll let you speak into my life, and I'll let you say, this is what I need right now. And so there's a balance here. That's why Paul has said, leading up to this passage, that we have to be grounded in truth, and we have to be grounded in love. He's already told them to learn to agree to have the same mind and to share the same love. And that means that when we disagree, we should first check to see if one of us is unbiblical. And then we should look and see if we're unloving. And the last thing we should check that I believe will help us towards this kind of unity where we put each other first is we check our motives. 
Look again at verse 3, just the first half. He says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Don't try to show that you're better than other people in any part of your life, and especially not in the church. In other words, as we live and serve in our community in the life of our church, let's examine the motives that we have for our actions. If we agree in mind and in heart about what God has done for each of us and what we as a church are called to do, and our motives are pure about our ministries here, and we are not selfishly trying to gain leadership, and we aren't just feeding our own egos, then we should be able to objectively discern together what is best for the church. And remember, that phrase, what is best, is what Paul prayed for the church in chapter 1. He doesn't outline every detail of every ministry. He says, you together, in maturity, should be able to discern this. And I will say a word here. Clear communication is essential to doing this. At some point, we can try and make every aspect of ministry so spiritual that we forget about just honestly saying what we're doing and why we're doing it. And if you have a disagreement with someone, you first need to make sure that you understand what they're saying and why they're saying it. So when disagreements arise, this is how we settle them. We try to understand biblically what we're called to do. And we do try to put each other first. But we do that from a position of knowledge and we do that from a position of love. And knowledge and love means we have to clearly communicate about each aspect of our ministries, why we do what we do, and consider what is honestly best. Knowing the mission of the church. If we are united in heart and mind and free from pride, someone in a disagreement should be able to say, your idea is better than mine. Let's do it. To help us with that, Paul gives us two instructions. He says, count others more significant than yourselves and look to the interests of others. C.S. Lewis once said that true humility isn't thinking lowly of yourself. It's not that you think that you're this terrible person and have all these flaws, although there is a place for being honest about who you are and what you struggle with. But he says, you aren't always putting yourself down. You're just simply not thinking of yourself at all. You don't even enter in your own head. Your thinking is dominated by the needs of others. Can you imagine what this would do in our marriages if we practiced it? Can you imagine what it would do for our church? The reality is, even saved, we are still selfish people. This is hard. The easiest way to dismiss what the Bible clearly tells us to do is to never think about it specifically. So I know in my mind that I am to count others as more significant than myself. And I know that I am to look not only to my own interests, but also to the interests of others. But because I don't always think about who those others are, their names, their faces, and what their interests might be, and how they conflict with mine, I can contentedly do nothing. 
I can even acknowledge that counting other people as more significant than myself is a beautiful ideal in the church, but fail to do it because I don't connect it with my church. What I need to do is read these verses and realize that it is God's instructions to us, to me, about the people around us who are here today. So I would urge you, look around you. God is instructing to look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of the people sitting next to you and in front of you and behind you. Like I said last week, one of the greatest hindrances that we have to unity is the reality that we don't spend enough time in real fellowship. When we do spend enough time with each other, we don't talk about the Lord enough. And many of us don't even spend time together. So let me encourage you again this week to spend time with someone that you don't know from our church and make a commitment to talk about the things of God. Ask someone for their testimony. Say, how did you come to Christ? I actually had the opportunity to accidentally hear someone's testimony this week, and I I didn't get a chance to ask her if I could share it, so I'm just not going to give you her name. She doesn't go to our church, and I don't think she'll mind. But she she was saved as a 17-year-old girl. Actually, she was a couple years older than that. She was 17 when she got pregnant, and she lived in a tiny town of 700 people. And they were a town of incredibly conservative Mennonites. And you would think, some of you have already seen the reaction on your face, judgment is everywhere. She got saved because that town loved her so much. They sent tutors to her home. She was a junior in high school. They sent tutors to her home so that she wouldn't miss any material and she was able to graduate from high school. This little community, 700 people, who are supposed to be judgmental, loved her. The pastor of the church that she was near, she, she married her boyfriend, and he invested in their lives, giving them regular weekly counseling, helping them, because he knew, you get married at 17, don't have a very good chance of making it. And he invested in their lives and served her and her husband. They've been married for over 40-something years now. They actually have great-grandchildren. She said, I said, there's no way that you have great-grandchildren. She said, you're, this is actually how I heard her testimony. I said, you're not old enough. And she said, well, actually I am. So I want to urge you. That's a little picture of what it means to serve someone who actually is deep in need. And I heard that because we had real fellowship. You have testimony stories all around you of people that you maybe maybe don't know. You can be encouraged at what God is doing if you just ask someone, how did you come to know the Lord? And let me take it a little bit further this week because I believe this passage demands it. I was reading John Calvin's commentary on this text and he recommended that each of us be conscious of our own flaws, correcting them and finding them. Not in some sort of morbid way, You read the scriptures and ask the spirit to be at work in your life and you be faithful to confess your own sin. And at the same time, we are to pay attention to anything that is excellent in other people while burying their flaws with love. When you look at the people around you, you think of what God has gifted them with. You think of what they're good at and you love them for those things. 
In other words, if, if you have someone within our church here that irritates you, and let me encourage you, take a second, be specific. Who in our church irritates you? Don't, don't call out any names. But I want you to be specific about this. I'm not going to tell you who I thought of either. If you don't have anyone here who irritates you, it's a sign that you're not close enough to our fellowship. That you're just staying on the edge of community and not really part of it yet. And so I would encourage you, come in a little closer. You'll find somebody. (laughs) But I want each of us to apply this text. So I want to give you just a moment. Is there someone in our church that you don't like? Think of that person. Now, think of something that God has done in them. Think of a quality that is good in them. And begin to change your mind. And if you think that's impossible, let me suggest that the problem is with your mindset. I had a fantastic art teacher named Don West when I was a kid. And he taught homeschool groups of all ages. So I actually had the the rare experience of being under his teaching for probably about 10 years. And after a few years of art lessons, I started looking at drawings that I'd done in the second and third grade, and I realized two things. One, my early drawings were not good. And two, Mr. West had always found something good in them to praise. It didn't matter how poorly I'd drawn something. As he helped me improve, he praised what little good there was, even in bad work. And he would, with excitement, suggest something that I could do just a little better. He didn't overwhelm me with everything that I needed to fix. He found just a couple of things and said, why don't you try this? I think that'd make it come alive. And I believe that that's a skill that we need to have for each other. So let me urge you to change your thinking about someone in this church and to begin right now you will immediately think of all sorts of reasons why you shouldn't change your thinking about that person who drives you crazy. You will immediately think, no, my opinion is well-informed and accurate. That's perfectly normal. Change your thinking anyway. This doesn't change the reality that you will still see flaws in other people. And honestly, we need to be able to see flaws if we're to help each other become more and more like Christ but it will help change your hearts toward other people so that you see what Christ has already done in them and you love them and can genuinely help them and we can build each other up. And then as we have the same mind and the same love, let's put each other first. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the work of Jesus and the example that he gave us. And we ask that you would help us to be like him. May we be faithful to the work that you've given each of us. May we be faithful to sacrificially love each other and to put each other first. We ask that you would put this into practice this week, even today. And in Jesus' name, amen.